Good morning. On this brisk winter morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Anna Gresh, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a very special welcome to everyone that joined us here as well as online this morning. Since 1870, UUASA has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people. You are welcome here no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background. You are welcome to join us as we proclaim worth in our spiritual journey. You're welcome to join us as we sing songs that uplift our very beings. You're welcome to join us in community as we learn and love together. All are welcome as we worship that which gives each of us meaning, maybe in a different way, and gives each of us value. No matter what you call this building, this house, or this gathering of people, we worship as one body, illuminated by the light of the chalice. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates. Now let us move into worship, willing to be authentic with each other, honest within ourselves, and open to connection with this warm community and our own spirituality. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now, Let's stand for the first hymn, opening hymn number 38, Morning Has Broken.
would, please join me in reciting the church's affirmation. You'll find the words in your order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. In our doxology. share with you a story by one of my favorite children's author. It's called Edwina the Dinosaur Who Didn't Know She Was Extinct. It was written and illustrated by Mo Willems and published by Hyperion Books for Children. Everyone in town loved Edwina. She was the dinosaur who played with the neighbor kids. She was the dinosaur who did favors for anyone who asked. Edwina helped little old ladies across the street, and she baked chocolate chip cookies for everyone. Everybody loved Edwina, except for Reginald von Hoobie Reginald knew just about everything about everything. He liked giving reports in class about all the things he knew. Maybe we all know someone like that. Today, he was going to talk about things that are extinct. Specifically, dinosaurs. But as soon as Reginald started, Beth McFeeder asked, What about Edwina? She's a dinosaur. And then Tommy Britcher said, Yeah, Edwina can't be extinct. She bakes chocolate chip cookies for us. And then Mrs. Mink added, Maybe Edwina's baking chocolate chip cookies right now. Before he knew it, everyone except Reginald was outside eating cookies. No one listens to me with that dinosaur around, thought Reginald. Well, tomorrow I'll prove to the whole town that dinosaurs are extinct, and then poof, Edwina will disappear. The next morning, Reginald handed out flyers that made excellent arguments about how extinct dinosaurs are. They also make excellent hats. When flyers didn't work, Reginald tried protesting. When protesting didn't work, he tried everything he could think of. But no one listened. Finally, Reginald broke down and cried. Boo-hoo, he sobbed. Why won't anyone listen to me? I'll listen to you, said a voice from behind him. Reginald took Edwina to the classroom. Inside, Edwina listened as Reginald told her the truth about dinosaurs. He was persuasive. He was expressive. He was loud. He was very convincing. Edwina was shocked. 
When he was done, Reginald felt fantastic. No one had ever listened to him so well for so long. Everything Reginald had said made sense. There was no doubt about it in Edwina's mind. She knew she was extinct. She just didn't care. And by then, neither did Reginald von Hubi-Dooby. And that is our story for today. Please join me in blessing those who are here and everyone joining us from afar by singing May Peace Surround You. The offering is a sacrament of the free church. It is supported by the voluntary generosity of all who join with us. The offering will now be given and received in grateful appreciation of our shared hopes and values. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and neighbors. But rather than pass a plate at this time during COVID, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary to help you drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit card on UUWASA.org. Thank you for your support.
I'd like to invite everyone into a spirit of prayer and meditation. I want to encourage you to start by putting both of your feet flat and firm on the ground. If you pray or meditate with your eyes closed, you're welcome to close them. Start from the top of your head. Feel the air on it. Relax your jaw. Feel your shoulders and your lungs and your heart. The seat that supports you. The presence of these people in this room and the spirit of the people joining us from afar. Let us journey into silence this prayer. Unpredictable, redeeming mystery of faith. We come together as a burdened people. Our hearts are often heavy with the pain of living in these mean-spirited times. We know so many people whose lives are filled with illness, grief, warfare, isolation. We reach out as best we can to help find clothing and shelter, food and compassion for those in need. Help us, O Spirit of life. Help us find the strength to realize your gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in their labor. Help us to see the signs of this time, to keep us ready for the journey, for we offer now the prayers of our hearts our prayers for those whose spirits teeter on the edge and for ourselves, for we would be a faithful people. Now let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for prayer hymn number 352, Find a Stillness.
This morning's reading was taken from a collection entitled Observations on the Intellectual Culture of the Caribou Eskimos. And this particular story was told by Akwik Hivik. You can find this in a recent collection of poems and writings entitled Home that I'm currently enjoying. It goes like this. In the olden days, things were very different from what they are now. Everything had a soul. Everything was more alive. When a caribou had been eaten, the meat grew again on the bones. The houses were alive and could be moved from one place to another with everything in them, including the people. They rose up with a rushing noise into the air and flew to the spot where the people wanted to go. In those days also, newly drifted snow would burn. There was life in all things. Snow shovels could go about by themselves, could move from one place to another without having to be carried. This is why we now, when in solitary places, never dare to stick a snow shovel in the snow. We are afraid lest it should come alive and go off on its own. So we always lay snow shovels down in the snow so that they don't stand up. Thus, all things were alive in the olden days. There ends our reading.
few years ago, I got to know a man I met in, of all places, the comments section of a small digital media company I invest in. We're both men of faith. We both share a raging love for the Lord of the Rings and several other nerdy things my wife edited out of this sermon. So right before Christmas, he and I got into a calm but rather tense conversation about a shocking article that we had both read in the New York Times. And the article, you probably read it, it documents patterns of failure in U.S. airstrikes throughout the Middle East. So in essence, the article claims that U.S. military commanders, they would authorize strikes on targets they thought were aimed at terrorists. But in the ground reporting, which includes direct conversations with survivors and the victims of families, the Times discovered evidence revealing that thousands, thousands of innocent people lost their lives or their homes or were disabled in these strikes. And in 62% of these cases, the victims were children. Among the roughly 1,300 strikes in question, only three have been investigated. My friend was an army lawyer, and he sat with military commanders, and he would help them decide whether to authorize strikes from a legal perspective. So what happened is the commanders would be sent live footage of activity on the ground that was captured by drones or high-altitude aircraft, and it was based on the rapid interpretation of live footage that strikes were authorized or not. Now the risk to strike, it cuts both ways, right? Not acting means that you might endanger the lives of American military personnel whereas acting might mistake a funeral procession for a terrorist group. Now, my short summary doesn't do justice to the Times article, nor does it do justice to the complex nature of military leadership and decision-making. I share this story because it highlights in a dramatic fashion a characteristic all of us have, and that's the tendency to reject information that doesn't match our existing beliefs. Psychologists, they call this confirmation bias. So in addition to rejecting information that we don't like, our brains are actually wired to believe that we know more than we actually do. Now, if you want to impress people at the next party you attend, whenever that happens, the phrase experts give this is the illusion of explanatory depth. Now, our ability to reason as human beings is an amazing thing. It's resulted in life-saving medicine. It's resulted in space travel. It's resulted in Netflix and self-driving cars. But there is a limit to what we can know. Our ability to reason will continue having a positive impact on human life, but reason seems unlikely to result in perfection because perfection it's not real. So cognitive scientists have discovered that our ability to reason is actually an evolved trait, just like walking on two feet. And it turns out that our ability to reason didn't develop to help us solve complex, logical, and scientific problems. Get this, it didn't even develop to help us draw conclusions from data. 
reason developed because it helps us resolve all those pesky little issues we encounter from living together in community. Now, you often hear that humankind's greatest attribute is our ability to reason, and that's a fine thing. But what we have discovered is that the greatest advantage we have over the animal kingdom is our ability to cooperate. It's cooperation, not reason, that is our greatest evolutionary achievement. But that doesn't mean cooperation comes easy. If cooperation were easy, this church wouldn't need 40 pages of policies and bylaws to tell us how we're supposed to get along and make decisions. And even with nearly 40 pages of rules, we still find things to disagree about. And sometimes the things we disagree about are the rules we agreed not to disagree about. The French thinker Montaigne said in one of his essays, I'm going to quote very briefly, he says, nothing is harder for me than to believe in people's consistency. And nothing is easier than to believe in their inconsistency. He goes on to say later in that same essay, all contradictions may be found in me by some twist and in some fashion. In other words, no one is consistent 100% of the time. I'd be willing to bet that most of us don't even do what we tell ourselves we want to do half the time. Right, we set an alarm to wake up early and exercise, and eight hours later we're slapping the snooze until it's five minutes before we have to walk out the door. We tell ourselves we don't want to be so agitated with everybody all around us, and then as soon as we get to wherever we're going, we bite off the head of the very next person we see. We look for what we want to see, and when we don't see it, we say we've seen it anyways. Just consider the fact that we recognized a somber anniversary because of this tendency earlier last week. I think this is a tendency that the gentle St. Francis had in mind when he wrote in a prayer of his, O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand. So last summer I had read a book on leadership and the author said that the best leaders have three key traits. The first two, he said, are bravery and curiosity. Good leaders ask questions, he said. They want to know more, and they don't run away from tension or challenge. But the third key trait is humility. They know what they know, and they know what they don't, and they aren't scared to say so. There's a bit of folk wisdom that goes something like this. If you think that you have arrived at the perfect thought— if you think that you have arrived at the perfect product, flip it over and turn it inside out because there's probably another way to look at it. If you read Ralph Waldo Emerson, you're going to find that he said this exact same thing about God. What Emerson said that is if you think you have discovered the truth about the mystery of life and human purpose, you need to think again. And you can apply this same thinking of Emerson's just as easily for people who don't believe in God. For people who don't believe in God, some of the questions that I want to ask them is maybe the God you don't believe in is really just a God you made up. And if you asked other people, what they would tell you is they don't believe in the God you don't believe in either. 
In fact, research shows that people who see themselves as being smarter and more talented than others are actually limited in official comparison. The scientist for whom this effect is named after, Dunning-Kruger, they entitled the original article on this topic, I love this title, Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Leads to Inflated Self-Assessments. Put that on a t-shirt. Self-deception can be a funny thing, and if it's left to its own devices, it metastasizes into self-important pride. But of course, I don't want to say that pride is entirely a bad thing. For instance, whenever I watch my daughter at a piano recital like I did in late December, or I read something that my wife has written, it fills me with pride. Whenever I check off a major project here at church or whenever I see a member of the staff accomplish something big, I get filled with pride. But like much in life, there are two sides to pride's coin. The flip side of pride is that it turns into judgment and self-righteousness. As it says in the 16th chapter of Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So talking about pride is a little bit like talking about humility. They're far easier to preach about than they are to practice. And even though I stand up here every Sunday 10 feet above contradiction, I am no better at humility or pride than anyone else. So rather than share some examples of other people's arrogance and pride, I'll illustrate what I'm getting at personally. Now, I know I'm going to regret saying this, But I love celebrity gossip. I love it. I read it every single day. In fact, I read it this morning. I ain't going to lie. I want to know who Kim Kardashian is dating. I want to read where Jeff Bezos spent Christmas vacation. I want to know who's in rehab, who's getting out, and the latest on Britney. And it pains me to say so, but what's worse is that sometimes I get a buzz from shallow talk. And I have been known to share in conversation with people a condescending disappointment in others. I do this even though I know and even though I preach, judge not lest ye be judged. I say often that people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. But the truth is, many of the bad qualities I see in others are alive in me too. So yesterday, my wife was reading in our sunroom as I was cleaning up after breakfast. And she reminded me of a Buddhist practice that asks you to meditate on the pain in your life. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because its ancient wisdom knows that there's another kind of pride that's seldom talked about And that's the pride we have in our own self-pity. There's a tendency to wear our woundedness like a badge of honor or to wield it like a social bludgeon. To keep this at bay, the practice asks us to take seriously that which causes us fear and pain, but then to turn and take in the sadness and the pain of the world. The humorist Finley Peter Doon, he created an alter ego of his. 
and the alter ego was a bartender and a fault finder named Mr. Dooley. And so in one of Mr. Dooley's rants, he tells readers that the role of the newspaper is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The same thing can be said about good religion and about this church. Good religion reminds us that life isn't supposed to be a pleasure cruise. Most people, myself included, we don't like to do things that make us uncomfortable. We run from tension. We veg out on TikTok for the dopamine. We drink. We lash out. We gossip rather than face the facts. But the risk in keeping things easy is that you might end up finding out who you aren't. Funny thing about life is the suffering and struggle we choose, like parenting or getting sober or marriage, they often end up meaning more to us than anything else. It's all those hard things we choose and the hard stuff that comes. That's the stuff that often shows us who we really are. They humble us to life, and they humble us to the people we live it with. And sometimes they even inspire new ways of living that are more open and generous and accepting. Now, I don't assume that humility means the same thing for you as it does for me. But for me, humility is the starting point in my relationship with God. For other people, I accept that accessing the holy may be finding pride in who you are. Heaven knows people who are LGBTQ or disabled or marginalized or abused, they don't need to be told to be humble. They need to be told that they matter, that their pain is real, that their life and their living and that their love and their longing is valid. But the pride that I'm talking about this morning is the pride that separates us from others. Human beings have been around for some 300,000 years. And in that time, we have refined the means of human existence. But by my estimation, there are two things that we haven't fully refined. One is the fact of our end. And the other is how strange and hard and magical it is to be a human being. And I'm not trying to be fatalistic and suggest that we stop asking questions. After all, science and its advance are reliant on our nature to ask and seek and find. But insofar as that is true, it's equally true that just as soon as we get an answer, suddenly a new question comes and then we feel stupid and crazy and the process starts all over again. It's a similar pattern when it comes to living. We fall in love, and we get married, and we have kids, and we get a job, and we pay off the mortgage, and from the outside, everything looks hunky-dory. But inside, we struggle to understand who we are. I suppose one might look to science for this answer, and we know what it is. Collaboration and community. Those might look good on a poster in a guidance counselor's office, but if the counselor's not in to talk to you, you're not going to know what they are. And that's where religion comes in. I'd be willing to bet that in 152 years that this church has been in existence, one of the most preached on sermons from this pulpit is Matthew's fifth chapter when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he tell us? He says, bless the poor, 
Bless the suffering, the meek, the hungry, the peacemakers. He tells us to be the salt of the earth, to be guiding lights in dark times. He tells us to get a handle on our anger, to get a handle on our lust, to be humble, to take our oaths seriously, and to think twice before we retaliate. And then towards the end, he says, love your enemies. But the final thing he says is be perfect. But the point of perfection here is a reminder that as long as you are alive, you have a chance to live into the fullness of your human calling, to be humble seekers and peacemakers. This week, several people sent me the last article in a series the New York Times ran on the oldest New Yorkers. So seven years ago, the journalist John Leland, he started reporting on six older adults. The last adult that he had been reporting on, her name was Ruth Willig. She died on Christmas Eve. This is one of the best articles I've read in a long time. And in it, Mr. Leland shared what was said when he asked some of New York's oldest residents what it takes to make a full and meaningful life. The answers are powerful in their simplicity. Here's what they said. Make lives out of what you have, not what's taken away. Don't brood about things you can't reach. Live like your time is limited. Focus on the people you care about. Enjoy pleasures near at hand. Accept that you will die and help people. Sometimes the hardest thing is to resist that which comes easiest, to make everything about us, to assume we're right and everyone else is wrong, to think we're smarter than we are deserving of credit for. Often the hardest things to do are the easiest things to remember. And that's another lesson the folks in New York talked about. What's amazing about the faith we practice is that its message seems illogical. Give and you will receive. Lose your life and then you'll gain it. Take yourself a bit more lightly so you can take others a little more seriously. But the truth is that its message contains the very purpose of human reason, to embrace this world, to embrace the people in it and the time we have. In the great span of time that will render all things equal, my prayer is that all of us will be added to the nameless roster of those who added to the welfare of the world, people who acted with grace and bravery, and in so doing left a legacy of hope that reminds every generation that we were made to learn to live together. Amen. You're welcome to rise now in spirit or body for our closing hymn, number 131, Love Will Guide Us.
If you came here with someone, you're welcome to take their hand. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. You're welcome to have a seat and relax and enjoy the postlude. I'll see you after church.